we are at week 16. Uh, we've arrived at Saul. Um, two weeks ago, we did Boaz, and I, I thought Boaz was pretty... That was, you know, it wasn't... I'm not saying it was a good message, but it's definitely very good content. It's kind of like, you know, you, you get asked to preach types of Christ from the Old Testament, and Boaz is kind of like... Um, help me with this, baseball people. It's like an 82-mile-an-hour fastball right down the center with... What is it better for it to be faster? Anyway, it's it's hard to go wrong uh, with something like Boaz, but a lot of people might have trouble seeing how Saul is a type of Christ, and I think he's actually not a type of Christ, but rather an anti-type. And we haven't really we've seen a few of those. We've seen how you know Abraham was righteous. We didn't really go into Lot, but Lot was pr- pretty much the antithesis of Abraham. Abraham was called out of his land, and Lot wanted to go back into familiar land. And you know, there's there's uh, it's the Bible doesn't uh, we're not yin and yang here, but there are types and antitypes. There are there are descriptions of Jesus, and then there are descriptions of of evil men. And we've looked at how, you know, Christ being the last Adam, he's the last Adam in counterdistinction to the first Adam. And where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And so today, by looking at what Saul has failed to do, we're going to see our need for a righteous king. And um, with that, before we get to seeing why we need a righteous king, we're going to see what this idea of a king means. Um, we looked at at uh, part in part zero, this concept of the phrase "the Lord Jesus Christ," and to us, we you know, growing up in the church, we think, oh well, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's just something we pray um, at church, and you know, it's just a phrase. You know, Jesus Christ means that Christ, you know, is just Jesus's last name. It, you know, what does Christ means? You know, if you get asked that question, what does the word Christ mean? And you'll think, oh well, it's Jesus. And, but you just, that's not exactly an answer. So we, we looked at, if you remember in part zero, how Jesus means, uh, you know, he will save their, the, his people from their sins. That is, Jesus means he's the Messiah. And when we got to Joshua, we looked at how they were the same name. But the word Christ has a specific biblical meaning. And we looked at how it, it every time it's mentioned, that word Christ, it's really just talking about someone who is anointed to reign on the throne of Israel. So Saul here in this uh, account that we're going to look at today, he gets anointed. But that doesn't mean just because he's anointed for a function that he's living in a righteous way. And so we're going to look at how uh, fleshly, sinly man, his his kingdom, his kingship is corrupted by his own sin and his struggle for power and his desires to be sovereign unto himself. And in distinction to that, we need a leader who can live righteously and lead according to God's laws. So um, today I'm really going to be just telling the story because I feel like there's a lot of elements to this story that um, some of us don't know, maybe maybe you're kind of familiar with. Um, we already just looked at how the Israelites had picked up their, you know, they'd come together, they'd, they'd formed a little band and came to Samuel and said, we need a king. Well, there's a reason why I started with this passage. In fact, we didn't even Saul didn't even show up in the reading, and there's a very good reason for that. I feel like it's important for us to look at the way in which um, a king was was viewed by Samuel. So 
Today, we're really going to be looking at how Israel was in the land, what this request for the king was all about, um, what Samuel's warnings were for the people of Israel, and how when Saul rises to uh, his position of authority in these circumstances, he's not set up for, for failure, but he doesn't exactly have a lot of things working for him either. Um, God knows what's going to happen. He, by Samuel, he prophesies beforehand what this wicked man is going to do. And then through Saul's failures, we're going to see how Christ is the answer to the, the need for us as the people of God to have a leader, a federal representative who lives and reigns on our behalf. So Israel in the land. Um, we looked at this at the beginning in verse or in, in the first part of the series, the first teaching, um, how Adam had a specific function that Adam was literally Yahweh's son, and as Yahweh's son, he was given dominion over the garden. And so, just as Adam was given dominion over the garden, so too Jacob, or the people of Israel, um, who, who of whom God calls Jacob my son, Jacob is Yahweh's son, or the people of Israel, it, a way to view them is that they are as a community, as a corporate, they're a corporate son of, of God. And I'm not talking about like we're all little mini Jesuses um, in that we all are divine in our own right, but the people of Israel, were they were living in a, a specific function that they were to be God's representative in the land. In Genesis 17, 8, when we were discussing Abraham, we noticed the promise that Yahweh had given to Abraham was was this specifically, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, that is the land in which Abraham's moving through while he's a, while he's a nomad. Um, I'm going to give you that land, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So every time that Yahweh promises the Israelites this piece of land, he says, you're going to get the land, and I'm going to be your God. Or, because I'm your God, you're going to get the land, and I will be your God. It's it's every time you see it, it doesn't show up one or the other, I'll be your people, or I'll be your God, and you will be my people. It doesn't ever mention that Yahweh is going to lead the people of Israel, except for also being uh, said at the same time that you also are going to be my people in a specific place. And so here, when we see Israel in the land, we know that they have a specific function. The people of God were entering this land, the promised land or the land of Canaan, and they were to possess it for Yahweh. They were to live in that land on behalf of God. Just as Adam was Yahweh's representative in the garden, so too Israel was supposed to be Yahweh's representative in the promised land. We see this highlighted again in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, here he says, I'm going to give you uh, a possession and you're my people that I've chosen for myself, even though you are uh, 
even though all the earth, all of, all of the land, all of the people in the earth, not only the land, but also the peoples, all of those belong to Yahweh, but he's saying to them that um, you're going to be my special possession. And so here we know that Israel has a calling on their life. Jacob doesn't get to do what Jacob wants. Jacob is living under Yahweh's authority. And he exercises that authority on behalf of Yahweh. But in the ancient Near East, if you look at all of the different cultures uh, surrounding the people of Israel, the idea of a king is always tied to that king having some right to rule. Um, In the Middle Ages and the Age of Exploration, this doctrine was solidified in the concept of the divine right of kings. And this is not a new thing. This is a, this is a thing that actually is in, is in God's heart, that kings who rule, rule because God has installed them. But the problem with the pagan nations around Israel is they actually went one step further. They didn't just think that the king was installed in their nation because God did something or the gods did something, but rather they went one step further and made the the connection that this king is also divine himself. Now, the problem with that is when you have a sinful, evil man who's being exalted and worshipped as divine, uh, he's going to set up an empire and he's going to wage wars and he's going to be a tyrant. And the the fact of the matter is that this is a biblically... uh, a biblically defensible theme time and again with the encounters that Abraham has with Pharaoh, where Abraham comes in and he, he has his wife and possessions, and, um, and Pharaoh, at one time or another, they come and um, try to basically steal Abraham's uh, possessions, his wife. And so Abraham lies. And the same thing happens when Pharaoh... Uh, when the Israelites go down to Pharaoh, they go down and they bring a blessing on Pharaoh first. When the the sons of Isaac come down and and they uh, they set up, uh, or the sons of Jacob, they come down and set up a you know a nice way for Egypt to make it through this famine. They they bring a blessing from God, and yet Pharaoh and and his children, other pharaohs after him, over time enslave the people of of Israel or the Hebrews, and they put them under harsh tasks. And we saw how Exodus was the story of of the undoing of all of that. And so, so for us to understand why Yahweh interprets uh, their request for a king as rejection, we have to see it in the light of the cultural context of what a king was. So this this request from the Israelites for a king to rule over them is not a request for just some different form of government. They weren't just moving from, uh, from some simple thing like a democratic republic to a monarchy. They were moving from theocracy to a monarchy. They were rejecting God's right to rule over them, and they were saying, we will not have you rule over us, but rather we want one from, from our own choosing. That's confirmed, and it's a major point in 1 Samuel 8. Verse 7b, Yahweh is speaking to Samuel, and he says, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
See, Samuel was just a priest. He wasn't executing any sort of functions of, of uh, kingship. He wasn't a king in any way. Moses, likewise, wasn't a king. Samuel and Moses, they were simply mediators. The people come to Samuel and they say, we want you to anoint a king, but they don't say, we want you to ask God to allow you to anoint a king. They just come to Samuel and say, we want you to install a king. It picks up and says, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are also doing to you. Yahweh says about this event that their request for a king is a form of spiritual idolatry. They would rather have a human who was like them over them instead of uh, instead of Yahweh directing the the political scene as well as the cultural scene. And so here, this is exactly the same error in a, in a very real way that Adam had in the garden. Adam was convinced by the, the serpent that God was not like him because what he said was, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God, which means that Adam had to first believe that there was a distance between him and God. And so Adam puts himself at a distance between God by believing that Yahweh is not like him or Yahweh is distant or Yahweh, he can't relate to Yahweh. And so in this exact same way, the Israelites put themselves at a distance from God saying, we don't want God to rule over us, but we would rather be like the nations around us with kings who are humans and those who we can see and those who won't punish us for our evilness or our, our spiritual idolatry. In Exodus 20, verse 19, this is the same thing that happened when the Israelites were around the mountain. They were invited to come up and have this encounter with God, but they say to Moses, it says in verse 19 of Exodus 20, and they said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we will listen, but, you do, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They believed that Moses was in this different class and that they were not able to relate to God on their own. And because of their iniquity, that, that's somewhat true, but Moses wasn't a sinless man. He had iniquity as well. And so God was inviting his people time and again to be close to him, and they want to push him away and put him at a distance. That's a major theme of the Old Testament. So with that understanding, in 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 through 20, when the people respond to Samuel's warning, saying, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, they're making a major statement that they don't trust Yahweh's call on them to be a special people. They're asking that they could be like all the nations around them. Not only that, they're saying that we want a king that's going to go out and fight our battles for us. They're, they, they're now totally ignorant, and they have completely forgotten about all of the different battles that Yahweh has fought on their behalf, namely the encounter with them in the Exodus, the, the raising of the cities of Ai, Jericho, the five kings that were slayed by Jacob, uh, or by, by, um, by Joshua, rather. They, they are saying that we want a king. We don't have one. We need one because God isn't fighting our battles for us. That's what they're saying here. And so Samuel hears this and he's just heartbroken. He goes and like Moses is a mediator and he functions in a communicative role. He 
goes to Yahweh and speaks to him and says, listen, this is what the people are saying. And Yahweh says, go ahead and listen to him. And so Samuel comes and prophesies that there, this is going to be a really bad situation. He says to the people that this king is going to take their sons and put them in slavery, and he's going to take their daughters and make them be bakers and cooks and perfumers. And he says he, that, that this king is going to claim rights on their servants and on their lands. And it's really, really bad. It's, uh, it, he spends eight verses highlighting the curses. You know, at least at, at Sinai, there, was, uh, there were blessings and curses when we were about to, you know, change things. Now, this time, there are only curses because uh, the people are rejecting God. Samuel tells them that they're going to enter into a curse through this activity of, of asking for a king, and they say, well, bring it on. And this is just a tragic event because they are totally rejecting everything that Yahweh has done for them. In the Psalms, it talks about over and over again, the people of God uh, go into iniquity because they forget or they fail to remember the mighty works that the Lord had done when he brought them out of the house of Egypt. And this is exactly what they're doing, but they're doing it in a unified way. The entire nation is turning against Yahweh here. So that being said, uh, the manner in which the king will take these things is really significant in my opinion. It says time and again that he's going to demand their best vineyards or their choice lands. And it also says... Uh, and my mom even actually accidentally, when she was reading this morning, she accidentally said a, a tithe, which is the same biblical word. He's going to take a tithe of their grain and a tithe of their uh, 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 the things that they bring out of the land. Yahweh is saying through Samuel that this king that you're installing is going to interrupt your ability to worship. And this is a very, very significant thing. He's He's saying that the, the things with which I've demanded uh, that you bring to me in, in the sacrifices, this king is going to make it hard for you to do that, and he's going to lead you off into idolatry. And the thing is that Saul doesn't do this totally, and David doesn't, and, Sa- and Solomon doesn't, even though Solomon begins that, uh, tr- that way in a very, very serious manner. But the rest of the kings that come after Solomon, it's even worse than that. They set up uh, I, you know place, places for idols to be uh, set up both on the hills and in the valleys. They, they establish uh, the Asheroth and the, the Baal, um, and it's just terrible. And so Samuel's prophecy, we know from, because we've got the rest of the book, it's going to come true. But they don't know this, and they just think, well, it's going to be fine. We know what we're doing. We don't need Yahweh's leadership over our life. And so Samuel is prophesying this is not just an economic taxation. This is a spiritual curse that is going to be coming on the people, and it's going to affect their ability to worship. So despite the warnings, the people insist, and it's Yahweh says, okay, let's go ahead and do it. And in his sovereignty, he decides to install uh, the, the man Saul. So in 1 Samuel 10, we pick up the story. It says, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you as a ruler over his inheritance? Just as we saw that Adam and uh, Adam was to rule in the garden and the people of Israel were supposed to rule the land, so also Samuel tells Saul, You are a ruler over Yahweh's inheritance. 
He doesn't install Saul as a king just to rule by himself, who is sovereign in his own right, but rather he says to Saul that you are ruling over the inheritance of Yahweh. It's still Yahweh's inheritance. It's not yours. And uh, Saul, Saul hears that at the beginning of his uh, kingship. He, he gets anointed and he hears this. This is why you're being anointed, Saul. You're being anointed to rule on the behalf of Yahweh and you're to rule righteously. But um, that doesn't last long. In, in 1 Samuel 10, 18 through 19, Samuel uh, again highlights what God is saying is happening through this passage. Samuel says, And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I, bought, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Now notice that's the end of what Yahweh says. And then there's a single quote there. And then Samuel continues, and he, he agrees with Yahweh in what's happening. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, yet you have said no, but set a king over us. So we see that the, the, the request from a people, from this people to have a king, a, a man king, not a, not, a, not a God king over them is, is a rejection of Yahweh. Well, Saul doesn't last long. In his first encounter with uh, the people of uh, the Philistines, he is going to sacrifice, and, and Samuel says, you're to wait at a specific place for seven days. Samuel doesn't show up at, at the end of the seven days, and Saul sees that all the people are beginning to scatter around him. And um, the, the Philistines are, are this close military threat, and so Saul decides to go ahead and sacrifice. But Saul was never given a command that he should sacrifice, but rather he's just supposed to be a king. And so Saul tries to reach out and, um, and sacrifice, and he feared the people. He feared that they were going to scatter, and he forgot that Yahweh had installed him as king, and he began to look towards his own people as the source of his uh, acceptance, the source of his kingship. Sa uh, Samuel confronts Saul, um, but... Saul didn't wait for Samuel to, to get there. He was a king, but he tried to steal the powers of a priest. And in so doing, he sealed his fate and um, usurped the, th the throne. Even though he was still king before and after that event, he began to rule in a way that he wasn't supposed to be ruling. So Samuel confronts Saul in 1 Samuel 13, 13 through 14. It says, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out a man, uh, sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel is telling Saul, um, we're beginning the transition process. Yahweh is looking for a king who is after his heart. And we all know, if we're familiar with the scriptures, that that is the phrase that's spoken about David. David is a man after God's own heart. But David himself, which we'll see next week, wasn't perfectly after God's heart. When, when 
when Samuel here is saying to Saul that the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, is he saying God was going to bring his son through your line, but because of your gross iniquities, it's not going to come through you, but through, through a successor. And he says that the Lord has sought out a man for himself after his own heart, and he has appointed him as a ruler. Samuel in both ways is prophesying over, over David and also Jesus, that Jesus is the king who will rule uh, over the land at, with righteousness. So that's the first failure. Um, things after this quickly go downhill for Saul. Now the men of Israel in 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 25, it says, Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. Remember the promise about the promised land? It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And here Saul brings his people through war, and there is nourishment that God gives them from the land. And this prophecy concerning how God was going to sustain his people was, was coming true in their midst. There was honey for them to eat. There was, there was something to nourish them in the midst of their, in their battle. But Saul, being an wicked, wicked and evil king, he says, you're not allowed to eat today on a day that we're going to war. I mean, what you and I can know, that's terrible advice. That is the worst kind of, that's not wise at all. That is, that's absolutely foolish. God in no way had ever commanded his people not to eat when they go into battle. Saul gives a harsh order that no one's to eat anything. And this harsh order is a forced uh, fast. It's not a voluntary fast in which people by their own choice are hearing the word of God and responding to it and turning with their inward, uh, an inward heart change. But rather, this, uh, this fast that Saul calls in the midst of battle is not one that comes from Yahweh. Again, this is Saul trying to steal the office of a priest. And so he, he hears, uh, Saul forces these people to fast, and his lack of wisdom causes the Philistines to be a problem for the Israelites all the way through David, Solomon, and the rest of the scriptures. And this is confirmed in 1 Samuel 14, 20, 29 through uh, 30. It says, then, then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That's pretty bad when your own, your successor says you're not doing a good job as king. He says, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have been brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Jonathan's basically saying that if we would have been sustained by God's delegated ruler, um, we would have totally defeated the Philistines today. But because we weren't, our victory against these evil people has been very shallow and not complete. This is the second, that's the second of the three of Saul's main failures, but the final one's the most tragic. He, in 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish 
Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now, there's a lot of relative pronouns there. Just to be clear, Amalek sent himself against Israel when Israel was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, came on donkey. Now, what you what we see here is Amalek is a picture of evil. He's a picture of Satan. <clears throat> uh, Amalek is, re- is operating against the people of Israel as God is bringing them deliverance. So God brings Israel out of the land of Egypt and brings them through the promised land, and Amalek <clears throat> is asked to provide them with some, some nourishment or some, some water. And he basically says, no, you're not coming through here, you're not taking my water, and uh, I'm going to come out and, and come against you. And, and they, he actually comes and, and the, the people, uh, the Amalekites, they come in and actually fight against the Israelites with, with, with swords and, and such. They, they align themselves against the people of God. And here, Yahweh is telling Samuel, the prophet and priest, he's telling Samuel to go tell Saul that uh, you're to put to death these Amalekites and you're to destroy them because they've been standing against me. But Saul doesn't do that. In Exodus 17, 14 through 16, we see, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory from uh, the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. What Saul does, though, is he goes against the Amalekites and he kills a lot of them, but he spares King Agag. And by failing to carry out the war against Amalek, Saul brought upon himself the curse that was supposed to fall on Amalek, that he would be blotted out and erased from Yahweh's book. And so in 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 26, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. He recognizes it once Samuel confronts him. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, this is a serious event for us as the people of God, because Saul has just been rejected. But the book of Judges showed us time and again what happened when there was no king over Israel that the people were unruly and they wanted to turn continually back to wickedness. And so we need a king who isn't going to do this. He's not going to listen to the voice of the people and, and fear them over fearing God. In 1 Samuel 15, 27 through 29, it says, As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul's failures, time and again, remind us that we need a king who will not fail. We need a king who is going to be a righteous leader over his people. 
And with that in mind, we need to, to see not only Saul's failures, but also the way that he was installed. The people of Israel at this time were rejecting Yahweh's leadership over their nation, and they said, we would like to be like the other nations. They were not only rejecting their God, but they were also rejecting their calling as a special people. And so, we need a leader whose installation itself won't be an act of rebellion, but rather that Yahweh will install his king, the one that he chooses, and it won't be something of our doing. This is found in the way that Christ comes onto the scene and is installed in Zion. Unlike Saul, Christ has rightful claim to the offices of prophet, priest, and king. As king, Christ executing the functions of the priest and of the prophet is not usurping authority, but rather he is acting in his own rightful calling to be the head over all things for the church. That's what it means for for Saul to try and grab the office of the priesthood. He's trying to be everything for the people of Israel when he was only supposed to be just the king. When the people of God are at war against sin and sickness, Christ does not cut off their food supply, but rather instead he offers himself both his flesh and his blood as spiritual sustenance and also makes the promise of communion with you. Unlike Saul, where Saul said, you're not allowed to eat anything when you go to battle. As Christians, when we see Christ our King leading his church into spiritual uh, encounters with the enemy, we need even more in that time to draw near to the Lord and to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. And so Saul here is a anti-type of Christ. But as believers in the new covenant with Christ as our King, We need to draw near with the full assurance that Christ wants to, as our king, our priest, and our prophet, he wants to have communion with his people. And he doesn't impose harsh, unnecessary fasts on us. He wants us to feast. Not only that, he also says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is something that... Saul could never provide as king for Israel. He, Saul could not be the, the people of God's friends, but rather Christ not only is king, but also friend. Christ does not spare the evil one, but totally puts to death all of the enemies of the people of God, all of their sins, their shame, their loneliness, their joylessness, their greed, their lust, their pride. He puts all of them to death and doesn't spare a pet sin or, or a king Agag. And this is spoken of in probably my favorite verse in Colossians, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is the gospel from Paul describing to the the church at Colossae how Christ, as king, has totally defeated all of their enemies. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile toward us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Yahweh has installed a king, and that king is Jesus Christ. And as believers in the new covenant, 
we come to Jesus and we see him not only as one who lives righteously under God's law as a man, but also rules righteously as bridegroom, king, and judge. And Christ does not force us into harsh service, but rather calls us to join his people and to take our part in the Great Commission, that is, the spreading of the gospel to all nations and the establishment of the kingdom of God in all people groups. Christ as king will reign forever, whereas Saul as the anti-king or the anti-Christ type king, he has been brought to a terrible end. And we as believers in the new covenant can trust with full assurance and faith that Christ is the king that Yahweh wants for us. With that, let's close and pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the magnificent king of the entire universe, who lived righteously before you as a man, who was ascended and glorified, that at his coronation the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was established. And we thank you, Father, that you have set Jesus as head over all things, for the church. God, we ask you that we would see the beauty of what it means for Christ to be our king, that we would honor and serve him in the way in which that you've called us to serve him, to to follow his example in laying down our lives. God, we we thank you for the this anti-type of Saul, the one who provides us according to 1 Corinthians a warning that we shouldn't be like the people of Israel. God, we ask you that as the people of God, we would not reject the kingship of Christ, that we wouldn't reject your king and ask ask to be like all the other nations. God, we ask you that you would give to us a biblical worldview that when we read your scriptures, we would read them with faith and with understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.